Well, hopefully you're in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue our series this morning entitled, Follow Me, The Call of a Christian. And today's message is entitled, Follow Me to a New Position. And we will develop what we mean by position as we go through our text this morning. But we began this series several weeks ago because we wanted to rediscover what I believe is truly real Christianity. As time goes on, as cultures uh, come and go, we find that each time Christianity is uh, found saturated within a culture, often that Christianity takes on a different form. It seems to morph with the society or the culture that it is within, and sometimes in that morphing it becomes distorted and we don't know what it looks like truly any longer. And I believe in some parts that's happened already here in the United States of America, where we have created a Christianity that some would call man-centered Christianity, Some would call it um, carnal Christianity. Others would call it the self-serving Christianity. My favorite title is it's all about me Christianity. And when I see that being forwarded and as I see that being developed in our world, I begin to understand that it is starting to lose its true form. The distortions of the culture are becoming so prominent within the Christian circle itself that we begin to lose its true form. And a lot of this distortion is often caused by the moment that someone is first introduced to Christianity and at that moment within that invitation to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a false expectation is created. Today in our culture, we have seen for years, decades, that we have tried to market Jesus to the masses, making Jesus more palatable and appreciated and uh, desired by the flesh of man, rather than confronting the issue of sin and allowing Christ to be seen as he actually truly is portrayed in God's word. And as a result, people have formed expectations concerning Christianity that when those expectations don't come to pass, you find them resorting to phrases such as this, I tried Jesus and he didn't work for me. No, he didn't work for you because he's not meant to work for you. You are meant to serve him. And you see the distortion in that one ripple alone. You see that distortion where Jesus has become a mere supplement to the Christian life today rather than the center of the Christian life today. So we decided to go back into God's Word. And we decided to go and look at every and each occasion that Jesus invited someone to follow him and then allowing the qualifier that he attached to the invitation to be explained before us so that we may know what the cost of following Jesus actually will be. For salvation is free. It's a free gift of God. But following Christ will cost you everything. 
And this is where many Christians don't understand any longer the real, true form and identity of Christianity, and that's what we're trying to rediscover in our series together that we've entitled, Follow Me, The Call of a Christian. This morning we come and we introduce you to one of the accounts that I think is just absolutely incredible. It's incredible because how someone could get so close and yet still miss it. If this account could be summed up in one phrase, it would be, I missed it by that much. Get smart? Really? All right, let me make a note here. Use illustrations that are not from the 1960s, but 2000s. Here an individual we will find positions himself in a, in a manner of humility before Jesus as the scripture tells us in Mark's gospel that he ran and knelt before the Lord and cries out and asks, what must I do to have eternal life? And I think all of us here would love to see that occur each and every Sunday after one of our services. Individuals who do not know Jesus coming and desiring saving faith and desiring to be saved and having an eternity with Christ in heaven rather than separated from God for all eternity. But Jesus sees that something else is going on here. And instead of just openly embracing this young man, he asks this young man to consider what he is asking He requires something of him, and the young man goes packing. He leaves because he couldn't do what Jesus asked him to do. He couldn't do it. And this may be the first time that this young man even found or discovered that what Jesus brought to his attention was a problem in his life. But how often I wish we would qualify our invitation of the gospel by reminding people of the cost that it's going to require of them. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in the account that many of you know to be the account of the rich young ruler. Let's pick it up in our text in verse 16. And we'll be paralleling it with the text also found in Mark's gospel in in chapter 10. And behold, as Matthew writes, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus replied and said, You shall not murder, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, but what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come 
follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And as Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to your word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. And Father, challenge us. Require us to consider and to think through your word within this account. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What an occasion. Many would have thought that this would have been the highlight of the day. For one to come and to place himself in such a way before Jesus asking a sincere question and truly desiring to know the answer, but he was not prepared for the answer that Jesus gave him. Again, Mark gives us a little bit more detail where the young man ran to Jesus, knelt before him and cried out, what must I do to be saved? Or as Matthew put it, tell me what good deed must I do to have eternal life? From the get-go, the problem is found within the question itself. For this young man had determined for himself that his salvation, his entrance into the kingdom of God, his entrance into eternal life was dependent on something that he was going to be required to do. And as a result, the question skewed the conversation. The question caused this young man to be confronted by a reality within his heart that he probably never had considered up until this point. What must I do? Puts the young man at the center of the equation rather than allowing God to be in that position. The young man convinced that by some act, some deed, some act of contrition, that he was going to be able to do something that would allow him to enter into the kingdom of God just to discover that he was farther from it than he ever, ever anticipated. This young man came to Jesus And in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, he addresses Jesus as the good teacher. Here in Matthew's gospel, it is simply teacher. For good teacher was not a common manner uh, of uh, addressing a rabbi at that time. A rabbi was a teacher at that time because it indicated that there was something special about the teacher. Well, he was right in that. There certainly was something special about the one in whom he was addressing. But Jesus wanted him to first consider The issue of being good. And 
the reply of Jesus here in Matthew's text shows us that Jesus wants him to truly consider what he is asking. Already this man is approaching the situation improperly. But now Jesus wants him to bring him to the reality of whom he truly is speaking to. Saying that no one is going to be able to identify what is good unless that one is good himself and there's only one who is truly good and that is God himself. Jesus rhetorically asking this young man, are you considering me God? Do you believe that I am God? Do you believe that I have the capability of, what's tell- uh, of telling you what is good in the sight of God? This brings up two incredibly important things that all of us must consider today. There are many Christians who believe that it is required of them to do something to earn or to gain their salvation. I am going to save you a lot of time, effort, and exhaustion this morning by telling you that there is absolutely nothing that you personally can do to save yourself. So stop trying. Stop. Cease. Cease and assist all activities trying to obtain your own personal salvation. It's not going to work. Because it is impossible for man to save themselves, to save himself or herself. It is impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible. So just get that through your head right now. It is impossible for me to save myself. There's nothing that I can do to save myself. There is no work that I can accomplish. There are no deeds that I can um, accrue that will allow my works in and of themselves to allow me to enter into the kingdom of God. It's impossible. But what's impossible for man is completely possible for God. Jesus wanted to get his attention off of this idea of works and onto himself, requiring the young man to consider the one in whom he is addressing. And he does so by asking him, Who do you think that I am that I could be able to tell you what is good? Do you consider me God? Which brings up a second consideration that we all must consider. Let's be honest, everybody has their own standard of what is right and wrong today. Don't we? Truly, we have come to a place in our society, in our culture, where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And yet the reality, regardless of what our culture reflects, the reality is that God still has his standard. And it is that standard that the world will be judged by. So we must remind ourselves that the good standard can only be laid down by the only one who is good, and that is God himself. He is the only one capable of deciding and to determine what righteousness actually is. The standard for salvation is perfection. If you are perfect here today, I want you to raise your hand because I've never met a perfect person before. And then after you raise your hand, I would encourage all who are sitting around that person to move because the lightning's coming. There are none. None of us are perfect before God. That's the problem. There's nothing that we can do to escape our imperfection. 
We are perfectly incapable and therefore it is impossible for us to escape our imperfection before God because all of us have been born into sin. But what's impossible for man is possible with God. So young man, who do you say that I am? You ask me for that which is good. Are you saying that I am God? That is capable then of telling you what is good, right from wrong, and allowing you to know what is the righteous requirements to have eternal life. He then points the young man in verse 17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Nowhere throughout the New Testament has there ever been an allusion to salvation in the keeping of the Ten Commandments? This was a question, a proposal that Jesus was asking this particular young man to consider because of the manner in which the young man originally approached him. The young man originally approached him and said, What must I do? What good deed must I do? Fine. I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to speak to you on that basis. Keep the commandments. And obviously the young man continues in that thinking. And verse 18, as he asks the Lord, which ones? When Jesus said to him, verse 18, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus brings him to the Ten Commandments and to one of the Great Commandments, not laying a pathway to salvation, but a pathway to consideration, a pathway that would cause this young man, this young ruler, as he is called in the other Gospels, to consider his actual life and to consider his heart before God. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, is given to us as a mirror to show us who we truly are before God. Because everyone, as we had just established, pretty much has their own standards today. They determine their goodness based upon, normally, the lack of goodness that they find in the people that are around them. They determine that they are right before God because they find that they are a little bit better than the person that they happen to be sitting next to in church. Look at everybody, look around. He's right, I'm a lot better than that guy. (laughs) But Jesus is now asking him to once again look into the mirror of the law so he may see himself truly. He wants to allow the law to have its perfect work in this young man to show this young man that he is incapable of saving himself. That it is impossible for anyone in a fallen condition to keep these things perfectly before God and to also understand and to identify that Jesus doesn't mention all of them, does he? In fact, there are two that he omits that I find are incredibly interesting in their omission alone. Two that would really help this young man laser in on the problem within his own heart. But Jesus wants this young man to take a step back. This young man is completely convinced 
that he just needs to do something more. He wants to have that certainty and assurance that he is going to enter into the kingdom of God. He asks the Lord, which ones shall I keep? Asking the Lord to give him an understanding of the possibility that some may be greater than others. When in actuality, God says you must keep all of them perfectly all the time. For as James wrote, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. That's the standard of perfection that can never be obtained or maintained by an individual who has fallen. And that's why the necessity of a Savior in Christ is needed for you and I. Because what we could not do for ourselves, He did for us. What we could not do for ourselves, He did for us. So this young man, listening intently to this teacher who he obviously respects, who he's obviously asking within a sincere manner to guide him, to direct him. Jesus is trying to do that. But the thinking is faulty. And instead of this young man embracing the impossibility of his own personal salvation by even evaluating himself based on these particular commandments and not even considering the ones that are not mentioned here. Look what he says in verse 20 to the Lord. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Was the young man right? Did the young man keep all of these commandments perfectly? No. Because Jesus made it clear that it's not only the outward observance to these commandments that are important, but the inward heart action towards these things. This young man may have never killed anybody, but Jesus said if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed the sin of murder. This young man may have uh, never committed adultery, but he may have lusted after a woman in his heart, which was equally grievous before the Lord. Jesus is asking him to consider not only the outward observance, but the inward, the inward condition. And this young man believes that he has kept these things. I have no doubt that he believes that he is sincere. And yet, even with his statue as a political leader, as a ruler, his moral position, his religious standing, notice what he says in the question that he poses to Jesus here in verse 20. What do I still lack? I believe I'm doing all of this, Lord, but what do I still lack? Good question. And Jesus is about to tell him the problem. Jesus, knowing this young man's heart, is going to get to the heart issue of it in just a moment. Unfortunately, many Christians today, many people in America today, approach God in the exact same manner. God, I'm doing all of these things, but I just feel that I'm lacking one more thing. God, what else must I do? Many people, when they originally come to Christ, they do so because they find themselves still wanting, even though they've accomplished a lot of their personal goals and objectives within their lives. 
But yet something is still missing, so they come to God. I just need to add one more thing, and then everything will be complete. I just need to add God now. I've added everything else. My, I, I've fulfilled all my personal goals, wants, and desires, and objectives. Now, if I just add God to it all, I'll be complete. And this has led to the supplemental Christianity that we find so prevalent in America today where we have our lives and we govern our own lives and we conduct our own lives and then when we are in need we just sprinkle a little Jesus on our needs. When things go difficult we sprinkle a little Jesus or we take our Jesus vitamin pill and we act and we relate to him as a mere supplement. Christianity is not a supplement. Let me tell you what Christianity does in the life of the individual. Christianity is not something we can just embrace as a supplement, as one more thing that we think that we need. Christianity comes in and blows everything up. It blows everything up and starts anew. No way. I'm not going to be just a mere supplement. I'm going to be the center, the Lord of your life. And he starts from that beginning. And everything then must find its way to a place of subjection underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. It doesn't allow to just be a simple supplement to our Christian life. It blows it up. It blows our life up. And this young man wasn't willing to come to that place. What do I still lack? Even all that he had knew he was lacking more. And Jesus then said to him in verse 21, If you would be perfect, complete, Jesus in his omnipotence, he now looks at the heart of this man, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. And then come and follow me. And Jesus brings us now to the point that truly needs to be examined. For within the commandments that Jesus didn't list, he didn't list, thou shall not covet. But he also didn't remind the young man of, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. Trying to draw this young man into the realization that that's what he needed to do. Jesus said, here's the problem. There is no room for me in your life as long as your possessions hold that place of prominence and preeminence. God does not call every person to this type of radical abandonment, but he did this young man because in this young man's life, this was the idol, this was the God in that young man's life. Now understand that this may be the very first time that this rich young ruler ever heard this said about himself. This may be something that he had never considered about himself. Jesus may be zoning in on a problem that existed uh, earlier than ever coming to him. And now this young man is confronted with the reality that within my life, even though I feel that I'm doing all of these things and that I've done them from my youth, this one thing 
has grasped my heart to the point that I have now elevated it. I have placed it on a pedestal. It is my God in whom I serve. And Jesus said, go sell all that you have and come and follow me. Notice that he says that in the abandonment, it would be treasures in heaven that are gained. Because this is where this young man's heart was. It wasn't towards the kingdom of God. It wasn't towards God. It was within these possessions. And Jesus asked him to consider this. If you are to truly come after me, if you are to follow me, you must abandon that which holds a place of preeminence within your life because there is no room for two gods within your heart. It will be me and nothing else, Jesus says. It will be me and me alone, for I shall have nothing before me. And notice the reaction in verse 22. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, saddened, for he had great possessions. In Mark's gospel, Mark uses the Greek word that is identified by the word disheartened. And within that word is also encapsulated surprise and amazement. He didn't expect to hear what he just heard. That's what leads me to believe that it is possible that he never knew that this was a problem in his life. And now Jesus is saying, if you be perfect, go and sell all of your possessions. Give that to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. Come then, follow me. Not follow me, then get rid of the possessions. It's get rid of them. Get rid of that idol. Then come and follow me. And he could not do it. Face to face, toe to toe, in a conversation, Jesus, the God of all the universe, gives him a moment of time and he is allowed to ask several questions, has a dialogue with Jesus. Jesus tells him exactly what needs to take place and this young man couldn't do it. He missed it. And we have no idea what occurred after this moment. And if everything had stayed the status quo, he would have, he would have continued and died within his sins or maybe continued to, to try to discover some other deed in which he feels like he could do. Either way, he missed it because he wasn't willing to surrender all before the Lord. He wasn't willing to lay it down. As one writer wrote, he said, With all of his commendable qualities, the young man still did not truly love God with all of his heart. Possessions were his God. He was unable to obey the command, Go and sell and come and follow. And all of those words in the Greek are commands. They're imperatives. Go, sell, come, follow. Jesus is telling him very clearly what he needed to do, and he could not do it. He considered the cost, and the cost was too great for him, and he could not do it. And he walked away, disheartened, shocked, depressed, chest down, because he was confronted with a reality that was too great for him to embrace, that his God was actually his possessions, 
We then move to the disciples who were watching all of this unfold before them. And Jesus used this for an opportunity to encourage them and to explain some very important things to them. And Jesus turned in verse 23 and said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He is not saying that it is impossible, but only with great difficulties. For we know that the love of money is the root of all evil. Wealth can be a great hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ because wealth can give an individual a false sense of security. One wrote concerning wealth, he said that wealth has a tendency to give people the false understanding of sovereignty. Because wealth can allow an individual to do something that another individual is incapable of doing. And it can give that wealthy individual the impression that they have authority and power and governance over their own lives when in actuality they don't. And often it is a point of contention thinking that with my wealth, what need for God do I have? But there's a mindset that is also being addressed here in this encounter, in this account. A mindset that started way back in the book of Deuteronomy, where the Jewish people were uh, conditioned to believe that if they were blessed materially, that God was happy with them, and that God showed them great favor. And if God stripped them from material possessions that God was displeased with them. And you find this uh, being based upon Deuteronomy 26 through 28. History tells us that Jewish people then, as the society continued, automatically interpreted wealth and materialism and uh, prominence uh, in the society as God's confirmed blessing and favor upon that individual. But like Jesus did with so many other things, he blew up misconceptions. In the Sermon on the Mount alone, he continuously said to the people who were listening to him, you have heard it said, but I tell you this. Because within that presupposition of what they heard previously, a misconception, a false expectation had been created And Jesus is now saying, no, this is the truth. This is what reality is. For the Jewish people at that time, one who was being blessed in their business, to the society around them looking from the outside in, they would have concluded that God favored that person. It was established with the wealthy men such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was just something that began to be ingrained in their DNA and in their thinking as individuals who were Jewish people. And you find this concerning wealth and the understanding of wealth and how wealth played a role within that society. Not impossible, but certainly difficult for anyone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on in verse 24 and uses a humoristic metaphor and hyperbole. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
And in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? The word astonished means amazed, but it also encompasses the word perplexity. They were confused by what had just happened. They thought for certain that this young man was just going to climax in conversion, follow Jesus Christ, and go on with him. And it appears now that Jesus discouraged him when in actuality Jesus was just asking him to consider the cost of following him and what this young man needed to do to follow him. They were astonished. They were amazed. If this man cannot... Who can then be saved? Who then can be saved? Which is a great question. As Jesus will then answer very clearly, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What man cannot do for himself, God is about to do in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We must understand that our Christianity began on the pursuit of God towards us. No one comes to the Father unless He draws them. It all starts with God. And therefore, He is able to dictate the terms of the relationship. And what we couldn't do for ourselves, God was capable of doing. So whatever is impossible for us is possible for God when it comes to our salvation. But then there's Peter. And does it surprise anyone here today and this morning that it would be Peter who would ask further qualifying questions? I am so thankful for Peter. I'm thankful for him because he often asks the question that I would have been too afraid to ask. Check Check this out with me in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? (laughs) He just gets right to it. The young man, when he came to the Lord, and he said after Jesus qualified what must be done, and and the young man then said, all of these things I have done since my youth. And the word all is emphasized there in the original language. Here, Peter emphasizes, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, don't be too rough on Peter because he may simply be wanting to qualify their abandonment. Realize that none of them were asked as directly as this young man was to abandon everything, yet they did it. I think Peter wants the same assurance that this young man wanted when he came. What will we have? And Jesus said to him, look at how Jesus responds, Truly I say to you that in the new world... The regeneration, the renewal. As this world continues in its digression away from God, the blessed hope of the end, eschatology, the things of the last day, tells us that God will restore what has been tainted and infected by sin at the end. And it will culminate in the new heavens and in the new earth. And just prior to that, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that there will be a 1,000 year period of time where Christ will physically reign on this earth. And it is at this moment that Jesus is speaking when within this new world, this millennial kingdom, notice what these 
12 will have. And when the Son of Man, that is the Old Testament term for the Messiah, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This appears to be a promise that is specifically given to the 12 apostles. Luke reiterated this in his uh, account of the Last Supper in Luke twenty two twenty eight through thirty, when he wrote, "You are those who have stayed with me till uh, with me in my trials." Speaking, uh, Jesus speaking, and I assign to you as my Father has assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It appears that these apostles will be given that place of prominence and position that these simple fishermen in and of themselves could never have in and of themselves. Their social status was something that they were locked into from birth. And the nobility that this young ruler possibly had, which I believe he had, based upon the way he is introduced in the other Gospels to Jesus, as a ruler... This nobility is something that could never be obtained by the apostles in and of themselves. A simple fisherman could never obtain such things. And now Jesus is saying, your position is going to change. You are now going to sit on these 12 thrones in my kingdom and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And that was what probably this young man was doing uh, at this point here on this earth. It will, there be, it will then therefore be their jobs in the millennial kingdom where Christ is reigning directly. And in verse 29, And everyone, now he broadens the application, and everyone who has left house, or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The abandonment that Jesus is speaking of here is qualified by the phrase, for my name's sake. Not everyone is called to abandon such things. But if you are called upon to abandon such a thing, for the sake of his name, for his kingdom, we should have a willing heart to do that. And we should be willing to lay whatever he has asked us to lay down before him and follow after me, after him. And therefore, not only will they be blessed a hundredfold, but they will inherit eternal life. What is this hundredfold blessing referring to? Was Jesus telling the disciples simply to serve and follow him so they would be rewarded? I believe that would have fed the same worldliness that this rich young ruler had within his heart. But Jesus is saying, know this, that what you do for my sake will be rewarded. This hundredfold could simply mean an abundance of blessing. Or some more specifically see it, that though you may give up lands or fathers, mothers, children, etc., in the body of Christ, a hundredfold will be given unto you as you will have many brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. And though you may have only had one house at that time in the body of Christ through the generosity and hospitality of others, you will have a hundredfold. 
Because in the other Gospels, he does qualify that blessing as being something that they will experience here on this earth. I believe he is saying that the blessings will be in abundancy. And whatever you think that the world may have to offer, it will pale in comparison to that which you will experience and have in your following of Jesus Christ and being obedient to him. And then he leaves us with this saying, a proverb in its context, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And this is where our place of position will be changed by our following Jesus Christ. As one commented, he says, It seems preferable, therefore, to take the proverb as a way of setting forth God's grace over and against all notions that the rich, the powerful, the great, and the prominent will continue so in the kingdom of God. Those who approach God in childlike faith will be received and advanced in the kingdom beyond those who, from the world's perspective, enjoy prominence today and now. Or as another one wrote, William Barclay, Jesus lays it down that there will be a surprise in the final assessment. It may be that those who were humble here on this earth will be great in heaven and that those who were great in this world will be humbled in the world to come. Or as another one wrote, the words are strong, are a strong warning against being deluded by earthly ideas and standards and shutting one's ears to the call of God. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And to those hearing it, they would have understood that as to mean that the greatness and the wealth and the riches that people may enjoy today apart from following God in the kingdom to come, it will be those who humble themselves, who deny themselves, who take up the cross, who follow after him, who will be raised and exalted in the kingdom that is to come. That's what he is saying here. The question that you and I must ask ourselves this morning is this. Is there something in our life that we have allowed to occupy that place of preeminence like that rich young ruler? Only you before the Lord can allow yourself to be examined by him and his word to discover if something has been elevated to that place of prominence. And that, my friend, would be considered an idol in your life and must be abandoned to allow Christ to occupy that place of preeminence within your own personal life, that you may come then after him and follow after him. Are you holding something back? It possibly has, maybe, maybe it is something you've never considered before. And that God is saying, no, abandon it. Because it is truly your God. It is that thing in which you depend on. It is that thing that you rely on. It is that thing that you have placed your faith in. One pastor said, What if God were to ask you, I want the thing you think will give you life and power and joy without me, without God, until you have given it to me. Not only aren't we right, but don't you know it is killing you? That's what he is saying. You may think that you are absolutely no one here on this earth. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're no one in the kingdom of God. I am thoroughly convinced that when we stand before our Lord in the glorious heaven that we all wish and anticipate for and expect to enter in, we are going to be shocked as individuals will stand before the Lord himself at the great white throne and be judged and be departed from him. And we're going to be shocked when we see others standing before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And individuals whose names we never heard of. Individuals that this world has totally dismissed. Individuals that uh, simply have gone through this world completely unnoticed will be exalted to the point where we are going to be astonished and baffled because of their humility. Because of their simplicity for the things that they did behind closed doors that only God could see here on this earth will be rewarded openly in heaven. I am thoroughly convinced that those carrying those crowns won't be people just like a Billy Graham, but individuals we've never heard of, but God knows completely. There was an Amish saying that an Amish preacher once had a dream This Amish preacher was very well known for his preaching. Many came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Many followed after the Lord through his ministry. But one night this Amish preacher had a dream and discovered that all that had occurred that he felt that he was going to be rewarded for, he was not going to be rewarded for at all. And in astonishment in his dream, as he sat there before the Lord, the Lord showed him that it is not you, but the old man who sat on the steps of the church and prayed that everybody walked by each and every week. It is him that will be exalted in the kingdom of God. Just a legend that they have. But it causes me to think and to consider that the first will be last, and the last shall be first. 